0: Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong.
1: And I'm Jesse Chczewski-K. Susan and I are two statisticians, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about the impact
0: of Uber and Lyft on traffic congestion in San Francisco.
1: And then we talk about machine learning interpretability. Let's get started. Susan, do you ever use Uber or Lyft?
0: Jesse, when traveling to a different city, that's really the easiest way for me to get around. I really don't like driving in big cities where everybody seems to be always in a rush to cut in front of me. So renting a car is so stressful for me.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have found them to be quite useful services too and has, have also used um like Uber Eats with, with some regularity. Uh, I haven't spent much time though weighing the pros and cons of these ride sourcing options, except for, you know, just my own personal benefit of easily getting a ride or a meal when I want. But um But one of the possible consequences of these ride sharing companies is their effect on traffic congestion. And so there was, um, it turns out, a recent paper in Science Advances by Gregory D. Earhart from the University of Kentucky, along with several collaborators, where they investigated the question of whether the so-called transportation network companies, or or TNCs, increase or decrease congestion, and they note previous studies that have been rather inconclusive and and some say that TNCs have increased congestion and some have noted decreases. Hmm. Uh, if I had a guess, I would say
0: perhaps TNCs tend to increase congestion. Now, I'm speaking sort of from my own personal experience. I last visited San Francisco a few months back, and a friend suggested that we go to a bakery that was just about two miles away. And I was going to suggest that we just walk or take public transit, but she convinced me that doing Pool was so cheap that we should just do that. It made economic sense. And of course, she was right. It was so cheap. So what did the study find?
1: Well, so Earhart and and co-authors investigate congestion changes actually in San Francisco, and they are comparing it, um, congestion between 2010 and um, 2016. So uh, of course they did not just do some sort of straight comparison between traffic patterns in those two years, uh, because there could be all sorts of of confounding factors. And I'll, I'll get into the details of on how they actually carry out this analysis. But first I just want to describe some background information about TNCs that they introduce in their paper. And so um, they note that in 2016, 15% of all vehicle trips within San Francisco were by TNCs. And so again, that's the transportation network companies like Uber or Lyft, which uh, apparently was 12 times the number of regular taxi rides in San Francisco. Wow, 15% is a lot. Um,
0: It's quite a significant percentage of TNC trips, but maybe that's not too surprising in San Francisco since that's where Uber and Lyft are headquartered.
1: Yeah, indeed. And um, they did note that in New York City in 2016, that um, the number of TNC trips were the same, or at least roughly the same, as the number of yellow cab trips. So there wasn't as big of a a difference there. Um, Earhart lists a number of potential ways that TNCs could reduce traffic congestion. So... The ride sharing or ride splitting options are an obvious way to improve congestion. So, you know, if you can fit two or more different individuals or groups into a single vehicle rather than them taking separate vehicles, that could be a win for reducing congestion. But there were also thoughts that the availability of TNCs could help to decrease the number of cars that people ultimately own, resulting in potentially then fewer cars on the road.
0: Hmm. Yeah, just to clarify, those ride splitting options are like if you do the Uber pool option, right? So if two people decide to split a cab together, even though they're going to different places.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: I guess those ideas do make sense. And in the scenario that I described, you know, that's exactly what we did. We did Uber pool because it was so cheap. But really, my alternative was not going to be hailing a cab, it was going to be taking public transit. So yeah, I guess I'm curious to know how prevalent is the use of ride splitting based on the data?
1: They, they note that, um, so they do not have San Francisco specific data, but say that, you know, from other studies in other cities that 13 to 20% of TNC rides um, use the ride splitting option, but that just because the option is used does not mean that the car is actually shared. Uh-huh. That, yeah, so so that is that uh, there may not be an additional passenger or passengers in the vehicle. So a factor impacting congestion that I, I hadn't actually considered is uh, what Earhart referred to as Earhart and, and co-authors refers to as um, deadheading, which is when the TNC drivers are on the road but without any passengers. So this would occur when they're looking for new passengers between paid trips, and they state that 20% of the vehicle miles traveled by TNCs in San Francisco are without paying passengers. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's
0: a lot. <laughs> I'm guessing that does not help with issues with
1: congestion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's estimated that between 43 and 61% of the TNC rides are for people who otherwise would have simply walked, biked, or used other public transit or, or simply not taken the trip at all. That is, they're essentially car rides that would not have happened without access to a TNC Wow. Well, I can totally understand that. So bottom line seems to be that TNC could be contributing to increased traffic congestion then? Yes, and that is actually what they do find. So, at least in San Francisco, comparing 2010, which they would say are before the time, it's before the time of the TNCs, and then 2016. So, um, so these results are not necessarily going to extrapolate to other cities or context. So, they, they use data from 2010 and 2016, but they also create a 2016 data set without TNCs to be used as their counterfactual. So how do they do that? It
0: seems that trying to create 2016 traffic patterns in San Francisco without TNCs is not going to be straightforward.
1: Yes, I yeah, it's uh, I, I it was very interesting to read about how they actually do this. Um, so th- what they use is a tool called SF Champ, which stands for San Francisco chained activity modeling process and so yeah it's a mouthful um this is a prediction tool which states on its website so now i'm going to quote something from their website it says it uses san francisco residents observed travel patterns detailed representations of san francisco's transportation system population and employment characteristics transit line boardings, roadway volumes, and the number of vehicles available to San Francisco households to produce measures relevant to transportation and land use planning. Using a future year transportation, land use, and socioeconomic inputs, the model forecasts future travel demand." End quote. So so it has this capability basically where they can figure out or set up the. Kind of traffic conditions in a future year. So what they end up doing is calibrating the SFCHAMP to the conditions in San Francisco in 2010, and then they update the model using various 2016 inputs. And so SFCHAMP allows them to control for things like population changes and, and bus improvements be- between those two years. And we'll of course add a link
0: to the SFCHAMP website for those interested in the details about this prediction tool.
1: Yeah, and I should add that it kind of, you might have gotten this from the the quote from the website, but SFCHAMP is one of the tools used by the Transportation Authority for analyzing things like transportation infrastructure planning. So, uh, as always, we, we need to keep in mind, though, that the 2016 counterfactual data that they're going to be using is based on this model, and that models always have assumptions which may or may not hold in practice. But it does seem to give them a reasonable comparison. So what do they do for their analysis? How exactly are the data used? Yeah, so they try to factor in more than simply just the total vehicle miles traveled, because things like the time of day and where they're actually driving impacts congestion. So they, um, they end up segmenting a day into five time windows and also consider location information by using what they call um, traffic messaging channels, which are on average 0.3 mile stretches of road. And then they use information on, on background traffic estimates, so the things coming from the SFChamp. Um, they use data on the TNCs and also data on the speed of travel. And this is from a company called INRIX, or I-N-R-I-X. So to create the data set, they include one observation per time of day and road segment and only consider average weekday conditions in the fall of the 2 years study. So that's 2010-2016. Then the response variable for this model is a traffic volume proxy, which is derived from transforming the travel times to make the relationship between the, the various explanatory variables more linear with the um, with the response. And then the explanatory variables used in the model are things like background traffic levels, um, TNC volumes, and um, TNC pickups and drop-offs. I see, so the
0: number of observations considered in the model depends on the five time windows times the number of traffic messaging channels.
1: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yep, and then they use a just a a fixed effects linear model. And it seems that what they end up doing is um, they use the estimated model to predict then the traffic volumes in 2010, 2016, and for the 2016 counterfactual data. And then they use this information to calculate things like vehicle hours traveled, vehicle hours of delay, and average speed. And, um, And they find actually that the vehicle miles traveled between 2010 and 2016 increases by 13%, and that's close to half of that increase actually seems to be due to the, the TNCs. And so then they do a bunch of different comparisons. So compared to 2010 now, the vehicle hours traveled in 2016 without TNCs would have increased by 12%. So, um, between the two years, if there were no TNCs, just the, the natural changes in San Francisco would have resulted in a, a 12% increase in vehicle hours traveled. But when they account for TNCs, there was a 30% increase. And then um, for vehicle hours of delay, without TNCs in 2016, um, that would be 22% higher than in in 2010, but with the TNCs, it's uh, 60% higher. And then finally, the average speed was found to be 4% slower without TNCs in 2016, but then it was estimated to be 13% slower when they include the TNCs. So along all three metrics, we're seeing very
0: sizable differences with TNCs.
1: Yes, exactly. They are quite substantial changes. Yep. Yeah, so overall it seems that they, at least overall they do conclude that the TNCs have contributed to an increase in traffic congestion in San Francisco between 2010 and 2016. So if I were to momentarily pretend to be an economist, I'd suggest that ride
0: sharing be made slightly more expensive to offset its increased use. Maybe include some sort of environmental tax that would be paid by the riders, Um, or or maybe there could be some centrally located waiting or parking areas for ride share drivers as they wait for their next passenger to be matched. If you've ever taken a course in machine learning, even a crash course, you'll know it contains a lot of fancy sounding methods like random forest, support vector machines, and artificial neural networks.
1: Yes, some methods, um, such as the one Susan just mentioned, fall under the category of supervised learning techniques. That is to say that the methods are useful for predicting some set of outcomes. Um, Maybe we're talking about something like a bank that needs to construct an approach for predicting whether some future customer will be able to pay off their loans. Um, The outcomes are then going to be dichotomous, so default or no default. And then the predictors that might be used for for making this sort of determination could include things like potential borrowers income education level etc and the methods that we
0: listed at least some of them have been called, to varying degrees, black box methods, which means that we pass in the data and outcomes the predictions. We understand how the methods work and what they're trying to optimize, but we may not know, say, the marginal impact of a $1,000 increase in income on whether you're predicted to default on your loan.
1: Now, this is in stark contrast to methods like logistic regression or linear regression, which predicts um, quantitative outcomes where we can directly interpret the coefficients to quantify the marginal impact of changing various predictor values by some incremental amount.
0: Yep, logistic or linear regression are not black box methods, (laughs) um, which is why usually when we're teaching statistics, these are sort of the methods that we want to expose students to first. Even decision trees aren't really that black box. They're they're maybe gray box (laughs) methods or (laughs) something like that, because decision tree models consists of a series of yes, no questions. So do you earn income greater than 200,000? If so, travel down this branch, otherwise go down the other branch. Um, Have you got a college degree? If no, then travel down this branch and if yes, go down this other branch. And basically what happens is you eventually trace the branches down to uh, what we call the leaves where then we get to sort of come up with a certain prediction for all individuals that had answered the same way to those series of questions. So that would be an example of where you get some transparency of how we arrive at a particular prediction. But when we think about how random forests work, that's where we bunch a ton of trees together to arrive at a prediction. We now lose that interpretability and we're back in the black box.
1: With the proliferation of ever more complex algorithms and methods for prediction. Accuracy of these algorithms has notably increased, um, the interpretability, um, that is how interpretable the results are from these methods, they, however, have decreased. So this begs the question, why do we care?
0: If our methods are doing a better job at providing loans to those who rightfully deserve them because they're statistically more likely to pay them off, shouldn't we just be satisfied and move on? Well, there are a lot of things that overall accuracy rates don't show us. For example, we talked about how fairness in machine learning has become a big issue. Even if we have a better overall accuracy rate for everyone, it's not necessarily true that we have a better accuracy rate within different racial strata or different age groups. Without added information, we may not even know if our machine learning methods are implicitly showing preference towards some classes of individuals over others.
1: And then, yeah, trust is also an issue. So machine learning methods have been slow to catch on in, in some disciplines because professionals don't trust what they don't understand. So imagine you're a doctor and you have, have to give some high stakes diagnosis of cancer versus no cancer based on patient characteristics and tumor characteristics, you'd be much more comfortable conveying that diagnosis. If you understand what features of those characteristics led to the predicted diagnosis. Yeah. So
0: interpretable machine learning is a field um, that sort of comes to the rescue. There's a ton of activity in in this area. If you Google up interpretable machine learning, you'll find a whole host of methods that aim to peel back the curtains on the black box. Now, in May of last year, the EU, European Union, enacted the GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation. And aside from many different aspects of GDPR that you may have heard about in the news, one important and relevant requirement is that companies that operate in the EU that use machine learning methods must now be able to explain any decisions arising from those methods um, if those methods impact human subjects.
1: Yeah, so some researchers were not fond of this piece of legislation. Dr. Pedro Domingo, an an AI researcher at the University of Washington, had tweeted, so this is the tweet, the European Union will require algorithms to explain their output, making deep learning illegal.
0: That's hilarious. Luckily, it's not true. There are a number of strategies that we have at our disposal. One well-known method for explaining results from black box algorithms is called LIME. That's L-I-M-E, an acronym that stands for Local Interpretable Model Agnostic Explanations. Now there's an A in there somewhere, but I'm guessing LIME E wouldn't have such a ring to it. The premise of LIME isn't too hard to understand. Let's imagine we have a single observation for which we want to explain its prediction. Maybe this is a person that gets denied a loan because they were predicted to have credit issues. Well, they may want to know, how in the world did you arrive at this conclusion? If the underlying model was logistic regression, again, we can interpret the coefficients directly. Maybe the largest coefficients in magnitude were associated with the amount of outstanding debt you have, and you just happen to be someone who has a lot of outstanding debt, Um, and also maybe it doesn't help that you have three kids but also a low-paying part-time job, in which case these factors too maybe have very negative coefficients. So if only every black box method could be as simple as logistic regression, which as we can see is inherently interpretable. So here's how Lime effectively makes that wish come true. Black box method outputs can be hard to interpret really because the, in- the relationships, their model, are allowed to be nonlinear. That's to say that with a black box method, you may not be able to make a blanket statement about how having a low paying job affects your chances of paying off a loan. The answer can sometimes be, it depends. It might depend on, for example, whether you budget wisely and normally spend within your means, with some money left over to stash away in a rainy day fund, which might suggest that a low pay doesn't really negatively impact your odds of paying off a loan. Or alternatively, if you tend to live paycheck to paycheck, well then that's risky because you may lose your job at any given time and have financial trouble. So, what we're describing here are what's called interaction effects, and that would be one example of what a nonlinear relationship can look like. It can, of course, get a lot more complicated when we consider more variables and how they might interact with each other um, in a multivariate manner in determining your credit risk. So, if you've got a nonlinear relationship that you're modeling with some complicated method, how does LIME turn this into something you can understand? It rides on this assumption that even complex, nonlinear, global relationships, or global meaning across the board, um, it can be still locally linear. So going back to our unhappy individual who's been denied credit, the way that Lyme works is we might find a number of people who look kind of like this person, so individuals with similar features. Maybe they earn slightly more money or slightly less money but are also part-time, maybe some Um, earn about the same amount of money but are full-time etc so you can generate these individual um, similar folks using random sampling and ideally the black box method will then predict a decent number of such individuals uh, to have risky credit and a decent number of these to be safe so you've got sort of uh, predictions of both kinds of outcomes Now, if not, you probably want a larger sample or with just a little bit more variation. That's going to be step one. Identify a pool of artificial individuals who resemble the target observation, obtain their predictions under the black box method. Next, we take those predictions, whether they're going to default or if they won't default, and treat them as the actual outcomes and predict those outcomes using an interpretable model, say logistic regression, using their characteristics. If the resulting model has a good enough fit, we can then look at those coefficients and interpret them. Of course, these coefficients won't be applicable to just anybody. It's still really just helpful for the particular individual we started out with, but we can carry this out on multiple observations or even all observations in the dataset to get more comprehensive explanations.
1: So in a sense, we're taking a magnifying glass to what might be a complex prediction algorithm and and zooming in on the input and output within a local neighborhood of our chosen observation and then approximating the classification boundary using something simple like a linear boundary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for that to be an okay approximation, we have to assume that no matter how complex the model um, or prediction surface is, Locally, things have to look approximately linear. There are, of course, some other tricky issues to deal with here um, with regards to LIME, but people tend to like it because it's readily available in software package form in Python and R, um, and also it's model agnostic, which means you can apply it to any complicated, statistical supervised learning method you want ranging from linear regression, where you're probably not gaining so much, to really, really deep neural nets. Um, And then it comes with some really nice, pretty plots that show you, for a particular observation, what factors were influential at arriving um, at its prediction.
1: And, And we'll link the paper online, which debuted in 2016. Before we close the discussion online, I just want to mention
0: that it's also good for explaining other sorts of prediction problems um, that may not be related to fairness issues. For example, text classification and image classification are other kinds of prediction problems that it can deal with beyond just simple classification in the lone, no loan case. Um, there's a really interesting example for image classification in the paper that's mentioned. Um, it's about this problem of classifying images of wolves or huskies. So um, it's really like a, a ton of images of either wolves or huskies mixed in, and um, some black box method aims to predict whether the image is of a wolf or a husky. And this just sounds like a really hard problem to me, even.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm not even sure I could successfully distinguish wolves and huskies, just like sh- shown two pictures of one of each.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I would have no idea. Um <laughs> And in the LIME paper, they show that when you look at the classification accuracy overall for this prediction problem, it's actually doing really, really well. However, when you apply LIME to understand exactly how we arrive at those predictions that yielded the really high accuracy rate, you find that basically if the picture has snow on the ground, the method would predict wolf and otherwise it predicted husky. So even though we had really high accuracy rates, instead of having a wolf versus husky detector, what they're looking at is simply a snow detector that works really well.
1: That is really funny.
0: For completeness, this area of interpretable machine learning is one with continued interest from academic researchers around the world. The latest popular method that surfaced on the market is called Shape, that's spelled S-H-A-P. It is rooted in game theory ideas, and we're gonna link that paper as well on our website.
1: Thanks for listening to Databytes. If you have any questions
0: or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's Databytes with a Y.
1: And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.